Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Uh, this is part two of what actually happened on the 3rd of March, uh, 1924. And a, a big welcome back to Dr. Abdul Wahid uh, for your second uh, presentation today. So over to you, sir. Assalamualaikum warahmatullah. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, salatu wassalamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wa Well, when we, we left off, we were talking about what happened on the 3rd of March, 1924. The mm. abolition of the office of the Khilafah, the institution of the Khilafah. Mm. And we were looking at the events of that day, the impact it had on Muslims at the time, and some of the trends in ideas and, uh, and, and, and nationalism and secular ideas that had crept their way into the Khilafah in the you know, few decades prior to the abolition, which almost gave a justification to the people at the time who were responsible, Mustafa Kamal and others, that this was an acceptable thing to do, okay? Mm. Um, and we looked at whether or not he was a, 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 a ideolog an ideologue, a secular ideologue who was trying to undermine Islam, or whether he was a nationalist who was trying to empower uh, Turkey after a defeat. And honestly, when you look, it's very clear when you look at what he did after the abolition of the Khilafah, that he had some particular idea that he was trying to undo Islam, like when you uh, you go about as far as abolishing the Arabic script and making and abolishing Islamic, well, so-called Islamic headgear, like fez hats and, mm. uh, and it's headscarves and stuff. It gives you some clue. Mm. Um, and, and how enamored some of these people, some of these thinkers and stuff were about Western ideas and how they were projecting the experience of Europe uh, you know, through the French Revolution or the uh, or the, the enlightenment, the, the enlightenment, or even the the U.S. Uh, experience in their Declaration of Independence, and they they seem to be projecting that onto their own experience in the Ottoman Khilafah, which was very different. Mm -hmm. um, so we're here for round two, uh, mm -hmm. and we are uh, looking at two areas really that are important internal factors within the Ottoman uh, Khilafah and external pressures. Right. So um, backtrack about 100 years before the fall of the Khilafah uh, and the early part of the 20th, uh, 19th century. And actually, Ottoman, Ottomans had faced some unprecedented defeats, particularly in the Crimea War. Um, the Ottoman state was... Uh, its regional enemy really was Russia, um, and Russia had tried to encroach on its uh, territory. And uh, Russia was also seen as a threat by the British, a threat to India. Um, and, and for that reason, uh, the British and other European powers entered the war to support the Ottomans. Um, mm. And over that period of 100 years before the fall of the Khilafah, there was this general sense in the Khilafah that they were falling behind. As we said in our last part, they were a superpower, uh, un unparalleled superpower once, and now they were just one of a number of powers in a multipolar world. Um, mm. And that, that was a big shock to the system. And, and that was large mm. part due to the Industrial Revolution and Europe's greater ability to arm itself. Um, and that reliance on Western powers like Britain, those rivalries with Russia, led to a lot of debt in the Ottoman Empire. So mm. 
towards the tail end of the Ottoman Empire, there was an experience of being heavily in debt. And we talked about some separatist movements in Eastern Europe and the Balkans, leading to a loss of territory over the two, three decades before the fall of the Khilafah. Bosnia, Serbia, Bulgaria, Hungary, uh, uh, Romania, Poland, these places which were once under the Ottoman Khilafah. Um, and giving this impression of the sick man of Europe, they were called. Mm. Um, so that's the context we're talking about. And in that context, you have uh, a period of time I'd like to talk about, which involves Sultan Abdul Aziz, Sultan Abdul Hamid, and the Young Turks. Um, in that early period, uh, after the uh, 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 war with uh, the, the Turk war with Greece, uh, which was settled in a treaty in 1838 called the Treaty of uh, Malta Liman, I think it was. One of the conditions of that treaty by the British was that the Ottomans needed to make more reforms. And most of those were in order to enable Britain to trade more with the Ottoman Khilafah. Um, and uh, at the same time, when looking at Europe and how it had changed under these revolutions and uh, their experience, the, within the Ottoman Khilafah, they were looking at making more reforms as well in terms of administration. So there was a period called the Tenzimat, which is uh, probably needs a blogging theology show on its own, frankly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Thanks uh, for the tip. It was, uh, yeah, it, it, it really does. It's a very interesting period, a very important period, because... Um, the two arguments about the Tanzimat are, one, they were necessary reforms. It was about modernizing the administration of the Ottoman Khilafah. And uh, and the other side was kind of continuing a theme that I mentioned in part one, which is this is looking at some problems. This is looking at how Europe does things and thinking, hey, you know what? We're going to do it that way and we're going to tweak it so it's Sharia compliant. Okay. Mm -hmm. And... In fact, it's said that the Tanzimat were very heavily informed by the Napoleonic Code and the French uh, legal system, okay? Um, and uh, it started in about the late 1830s. So there was a reorganization of the finance system. There was an organization of the civil and criminal code, which is kind of very different because historically in the history of the Khilafah, there is no civil and criminal code as such. The criminal law is the judicial process and the punishments are all done through the Islamic judicial system and the penal code according to Islam, the hudud and other ta'zir uh, punishments, um, uh, uh, council of public interaction uh, listed there. Some other things listed there, Ottoman bank, etc., etc. Uh, topically for 2023, the decriminalization of homosexuality in 1858. I mean, you know, in an Islamic state, which is known to be an Islamic governance that dominates it, its identity is Islam, it's there to uphold Islam. This was in the Tanzimat, okay? So um, you can see why these things are characterized in these two ways, necessary reforms and trying to copy the West, but, mm. uh, and, and actually it's all signed off by the Sheikh al-Islam. So whatever they did in the Ottoman, Ottoman Khilafah, right till the end, right mm -hmm. till those final blows are justified according to Islam by some fig leak, if it's necessary. Mm -hmm. um, 
And uh, just to kind of give some support to the idea that there's external pressure here, there's a very interesting site called the Office of the Historian of the United States. And you can Google all type, you can search for all kinds of terms in there. And if you search for Sultan or Caliph or these kind of things, you get hundreds of entries talking about different things. And this is uh, in uh, 1850 uh, from the Foreign Office um, by um, a dispatch from Viscount Palmerston to Sir Stratford Canning, basically commenting on a firman, which is an edict by the Khalifa in favor of Protestants in the Turkish Empire, um, uh, uh, which has received the sanction of the Sultan. Okay. Um, and uh, in fact, below this entry, there's a long list of um, uh, long uh, text of what the Sultan has said about this. So there's a lot of pressure in Europe at the time on the Khilafah of how to treat, particularly in this case, Protestants, uh, but, but gen generally minorities. Uh, and this is a theme that will come again. Uh, and I guess one of the points linked to some of the ideas coming from Afghani Abdu and the other thinkers who were talking about that nation state and stuff in the previous episodes, reform and revival are two different things. Okay, revival, I think of as something which is like going back to principles which lie in Islam, going to your Islam to solve your daily problems and implement in the world today and reform could mean anything really. Uh, and the other lesson really is what's your change driven by? Is it, is, it, is it driven by a desire to please Allah, look after the affairs of your citizens or, or just like an geopolitical keeping up with the Joneses, yeah, uh, or external pressures? So these are important themes to bear in mind, especially when we look at how we relate with politics in the world today, because I see a lot of this nowadays when People are trying to tweak finance and politics to fit in with modern norms. So these reforms are coming in in the mid part of the 19th century. Abdulaziz was Sultan in the later part of the uh, 19th century. He's actually the uncle of Sultan Abdul Hamid. Um, and uh, as a young man, uh, he visited Europe. Uh, doesn't seem to have been overawed by the European civilization in a political and uh, uh, ideological sense. He was influenced in a cultural sense, certainly. He used to compose music. You can Google Sultan Abdul Aziz and listen to some of his compositions. Oh, really? uh, they're yeah, they're, they're clearly influenced by European and Arab and Turkish influences. Right. Um, uh, and uh, Aziz had a senior minister called Midhat Pasha. Midhat Pasha wanted to introduce more constitutional reforms. Uh, and there is evidence when you read about it that Midhat Pasha was being influenced by the British to introduce more constitutional reforms and Abdul Aziz resisted this. He yeah. opposed this. Uh, it led to a political struggle, which led to Midat Pasha and others deposing Abdul Aziz in 1876, around about the 30th of May. 
And on about the 6th of June of that year, he's found with both wrists slashed dead. Oh. Okay? Oh. Uh, in an apparent suicide. Yeah, yeah. Although if you slashed one wrist, it makes it very hard for you to slash your other wrist. And, so, you, and you're saying that as a doctor, of course. So that, that is yeah, saying, yeah. Uh, you know what you're saying. Yeah, it's it's not normal for somebody to slash both their wrists. It's not normal, actually, to be honest with you. It's it's a very unusual thing. But mm -hmm. uh, and there's, you know, I don't believe there's any suicide note found. So this leads to speculation that he's been assassinated. Yeah. Um, his uh, nephew, I think it is, um, is uh, brought in as a successor, uh, Sultan Murad. Murad apparently is already a kind of depressed, anxious young man um, who, when he's brought into power with rumours of his uncle's assassination, uh, with these big heavyweight ministers and advisors around him pushing, melts down into almost like a complete breakdown. Mm. And within weeks almost, he's deposed as the Khalifa. Gosh. Um, the office of the historian, very interestingly, uh, mm. tells us in 1877, the year after Abdulaziz dies, uh, in a dispatch um, uh, uh, from, I think he's a US um, a diplomat in Istanbul, uh, writing that Midad Pasha was uh, the ideal of Turkish statesmanship, a reformer and a true patriot. He's been a prime favorite with the British embassy and relied upon, relied upon to circumvent and bring to naught the machinations in Prussia to Russia. So I guess maybe the British at the time are worried that the Ottoman Khilafah will have people influencing from other places, from Russia or from France. And remember what we said before, for all the British in this area, era, India is everything, right? right? Uh, if you lose the Ottoman Khilafah, you open a gateway for Russia into India. But uh, the reason, you the reason just to stress, the reason why India is so important to the British is because of great, the great wealth and trade and prestige Absolutely. it brings Absolutely. to the mother country. So it's not because they care Absolutely. for India, it's because of the... Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. no. The East India Company had gone to India had, mm. with its private army taking it over, mm. and eventually all the wealth was flowing back to Britain. The city of London was built upon that wealth. Mm. Um, uh, all of Britain's advantage in the world was built on that wealth. Um, politicians and the uh, aristocracy were all shareholders in that wealth. Um, and so that everything is about trying to keep the, the Mediterranean. It, it's crucial that they keep the Mediterranean friendly to them. Mm. Uh, strategically, the Ottoman state is very important later. Later, when the Germans have a very good alliance with the Ottomans, uh, they help build a railroad in there. Now, imagine a railroad linking Germany right across Asia through to uh, India becomes extremely dangerous for mm. the British. So a lot of this is about India. But you can see that Midat Pasha, it's clear he has enjoyed a very strong mm. diplomatic relationship, which supports the idea that he was at odds with Abdulaziz. Lesson 11, beware of the potential for foreign agents in the administration of the Khilafah. And I say this without any shame, 
that sadly, when you look at the administrations of so many Muslim countries around the world today, and you see the relations between those politicians and foreign powers, you see that they're not ruling in the interests of people of their country, they're ruling in somebody else's interest. So this young man finds himself appointed as Khalifa when he's not really expecting it. Mm. He's around, I think, 34. I think this photograph is taken when he's much younger. Mm. Uh, Sultan Abdul Hamid uh, He's quite close to his uncle. He accompanied him on a trip to Europe as well. Um, but he inherits a pretty bad hand. He inherits uh, 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 an empire under great pressures internally. He inherits some of the uh, discussions about reform and secularization and nationalism, some of them, particularly in the Balkans. He inherits um, a massive amount of debt. Mm. Um, and you, you know, he inherits a pretty unstable situation because you've just lost two Khalifas in a very short period of time yeah. and over probably what is a dispute. Um, and uh, initially, he goes along with the constitutionists. And he, he, he calls for a constitutional to be written. Um, and you know, a lot of people, when they talk about this nowadays, they might be thinking, well, what's wrong with that? You know, having a constitution, you know, that seems perfectly sensible. But, you know, we're talking about 1876 when he comes into power. And um, that's, you know, like, when was the Declaration of Independence? It's 1776, isn't it? I yeah, think. it's yeah, So, so yeah. America only had a constitution 100 years before. And France mm. only gets its constitution less than 100 years before. And mm. Britain to this day doesn't have a written constitution. Mm. Um, so, so having a written constitution, um, which you can understand why, and I'm not against written constitution per se, um, but having a written constitution is not something which is kind of like a, a must-have uh, in, in, in every political system. Uh, and it certainly wasn't in the history of Islam. But Abdul Hamid uh, agrees to that. Um, but bear in mind, he is governing over a very unstable situation. He has got the rise of secularists. Midet Pasha was part of a group called the Young Ottomans, not the Young Turks, the Young Ottomans. So they were influenced by reformist ideas, and they're now in positions of political power. So he's got internal threats, internal instability. Pretty soon he has to deal with a crisis in the Balkans where he's got to deal with factions there. He's got Armenians that are going to play out in the coming years of his reign. And any student of politics will know that um, actually uh, politics demands that rulers can make decisions, and sometimes fast and sometimes effectively. Even in the US Constitution, the president might have to go to Congress to approve his budget, but he doesn't have to go to Congress to approve war, uh, uh, to defend the country, to deal with really quite serious crises, right? And, mm -hmm. and some people who are critical of the American system, praise it for its separation of powers, will also criticize it for the fact that it's a bit cumbersome with its separation of powers. So mm -hmm. Abdul Hamid has got this new constitutional system which has never existed in the history of the Ottoman Khilafah or any other Khilafah before where he has a written constitution uh, and he's expected to deal with all these crises. 
in within a, in a, in an empire of debt. Um, and it's the reason I've shared this quote from Otto von Bismarck, one of Europe's greatest statesmen of the time, mm. saying that if your wisdom is a hundred grams, I'm not sure he said a hundred grams because I don't think they probably would have had the metric system there, but I don't know when it was introduced. But if wisdom was a hundred grams, um, Hamid has 90 of it. He has five. And the rest of leaders and politicians have the remaining five grams. And Bismarck is considered by European politicians as undoubtedly one of the greatest statesmen in European history. I mean, well, even those that even his enemies rate him. Okay, mm. so um, uh, this is quite a statement to make. Mm. Uh, and in fact, um, Abdul Hamid somehow manages to steer through the next thirty plus years with this very bad hand he's built out. Improve administration considerably improve finances considerably. And even when he has to quell rebellion in a very harsh way, and people criticize him for being autocrat, and he's got a political opposition like no previous Khalifa has had, mm -hmm. right? No previous Khalifa has had factions like this, except, you know, going back like for, well, that's perhaps an exaggeration. There have been political oppositions in the past, and I'd backtrack on that. But no, no Ottoman Khalifa has had political opposition like this. Um, and still, by the end of his term, or towards the end of this term, he's a respected ruler. He's a respected leader. So he must have been doing something right in that era. Um, uh, and uh, in Europe, he's caricatured as, uh, I've got some slides later on, he's caricatured as the red sultan, red because he's got blood on his hands. Uh, and I'll explain why some of those things later, but it is about crushing separatism more than anything else. He's caricatured as being paranoid. Well, mm. he had an assassination, his, sorry, he had his first assassination attempt made on his life by external opposition in the very first few uh, years or months of his term as Khalifa. So he had, he had opposition groups which were linked to foreign powers in his administration, in his family even, one of his nephews, Prince Sabatain was an ardent secularist who mm. who even fled mm. from the Khilafah and went overseas. Um, so this is this is what this guy is dealing with, uh, mm. and at the same time he's resisting uh, entreaties from Zionists to settle the entire Ottoman debt just to give Palestine, and he won't give that up because he says this is not his to give up. He won't give up Al Masjid Al Aqsa because. He's the Khalifa who's a custodian over these places, not the owner of these places. So um, very aware of what's going on about the political machinations around the world. But in 1908, he is deposed by the Young Turks, mm. also known as the CUP, the Committee of Union and Progress. So why are they called, just to clarify, why are they called the Young Turks? It's a very distinctive title, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so they are Ottomans, they are Muslims, they are not seeking to abolish the Khilafah, uh, but they are seeking reforms uh, and uh, they want constitutional government. They've opposed Abdul Hamid uh, um, um, uh, suspending the constitution after about a year and a half in his early part of his term as Khalifa and through pressures they put on later on, 
Abdul Hamid reinstated the constitution uh, quite late in his term. Mm. And um, the Ottoman Khilafah has been facing all these um, different schisms from minorities um, and realizes that Ottomanism, because an Albanian or a Bulgarian or a Serbian or a Bosnian or a Kurd or a or a, a an Arab from Syria or an Arab from the Hejaz were all Ottoman as well as the Turks. Um, that this Ottoman citizen identity was not glue that was working properly. So a lot of the debates at the time were about how you bond the society together. Abdul Hamid's answer to it was you bond around Islam because that is in, in essence our core. Uh, our system is Khilafah. Our majority people are Muslim. Uh, if that's the bond you bond around first, other people will fall into line. But also there is a bond to other Muslims around the world. And he spent mm. a lot of time building relations with Muslims in India and Malaysia and and other parts of the Ottoman Khilafah, and Britain as well, as we've said before, and America. The, uh, Alexander, Alexander Muhammad uh, Webb was uh, the Ottoman, um, uh, I think, consul to, to America, uh, appointed in the time of Abdul Hamid. So cultivating relationships with Muslims around the world. Um, the young Turks were affected by the nationalism. So they were affected, they, they had... They were young Ottomans who had been, some of them had visited places like Syria and they'd heard Ottoman Arab Syrians speaking in an Arab nationalist way, affected by some of these ideas that we talked about in part one. Mm. And they didn't like that. So their default reaction was to kind of think about a more Turkish uh, kind of bond okay. uh, within the Turkic regions of, uh, of, and that being said, they also had pan-Islamic ideas. Um, they also uh, were very interested in defending Libya from uh, invasion by the Italians and uh, and, and 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 many other, mm. you know, trying to keep their relationship with Egypt, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there were many things about them that were trying to do a pan-Islamism, but. And you, well, as, that's, a, that's a Western term. Sorry about that. But um, you, you, you get the point that yeah. I, I think when I read around it, I see this tension between their Turkish nationalism and their desire to okay. uh, implement Islam. Young Turks become a bit pejorative as well. Um, it, you know, it's almost like young people taking over, driving the car recklessly. Um, and they did have a bit of that about them. And a lot of the criticism about them entering First World War was that the Ottoman Khilafah didn't have to pick a side. The First World War was predominantly about the rise of Germany in Europe. Mm. And Britain, France and Russia and Italy trying to keep Germany in check. And by this stage... Uh, as we will come to discuss later, the British had changed their policy on the Ottomans in the late 19th century and uh, really turned hostile to them. And at that stage, the Ottomans had built a better relation with 
the Germans. Uh, mm. And that's why Bismarck and Kaiser Wilhelm had good relations with Abdul Hamid. Um, and as a result, um, the Ottomans had very good relations with Germany. And young Turks had hoped to build better relations with Britain. In fact, they'd commissioned Britain to build some warships. Churchill had approved that. And then at the time that war had broken out, Churchill withheld the warships, which effectively meant the Ottoman Khilafah had to choose, do they just accept that humiliation or do they come into the war on the side of Germany? There, there's some reports that almost suggest the British gave them an ultimatum saying, well, neutrality isn't an option. In fact, there was a delay between when war broke out with Germany and war was declared with the Ottomans because it, the Ottomans did stop, think about staying neutral. So it is possible that had the British not done that move, the Ottomans would have tried to stay neutral. Yeah. But, you know, um, Abdul Hamid was criticised often for being too diplomatic um, um, and, and not confronting his enemies from other world powers sufficiently. Um, and the counter of that is diplomacy is just a tool in warfare. And it's a tool that means less loss of blood. Uh, it means less loss of life. And it's less costly when you're in debt uh, and wars take money to fight. So perhaps Abdul Hamid, with his political acumen and political wisdom, was steering the Ottoman Khilafah through a period where it needed to avoid conflict before, so it could get more independent. Um, mm. But World War One breaks out, uh, and the Ottomans are in the game on the in the what they call with the Axis powers, um, and um, the Khilafah, the Khalifa, the Ottoman, the Young Turk government, basically the government, the the Khalifa who succeeded, I think is Mehmed the Fifth, I think is the one who succeeded. Uh, um, uh, Abdul Hamid is is more of a figurehead, more of a constitutional Khalifa rather than a rather than a, a an actual governor. Um, and the Young Turks ask the get the Sheikh al Islam to go to the Fatih Mosque in Istanbul, beautiful masjid, and read a fatwa of jihad against the Allied powers of Europe. So the Ottoman army that's mobilised with its tanks, its planes, its professional soldiers. Uh, its uh, artillery uh, is the last army of jihad we've really seen um, and declared in a proper way. So uh, they held out better than anyone could have expected at the outset of the war. I think by nobody would have expected them to still be in the game by 1918. Um, and in fact, uh, the war in the Ottoman territories went on longer than in Europe. Because even when officially the war had ended in Europe, there were wars. There was there was uh, the, there was still the war effectively being fought in Turkey and elsewhere. Um, so uh, you know you can say that really that ended with the Treaty of Lausanne in 1923. Um, lesson twelve with this, I think, is pan-Islamic bonds, i.e., unity of the Ummah. Uh, it must always be sincerely for Islam. There's a criticism of Abdul Hamid and the, the, the young Turks that they were pragmatic or opportunistic uh, and using their Islam 
Um, I don't get that sense with Abdul Hamid. Uh, you, you get the sense when you read about him of a, of a sincere and devout person. Um, and there isn't really this conflict with the young Turks who have got this Turkish identity. At the same time, they are looking to use the pan-Islamic identity of the Ummah as soft power, you can say, in diplomatic terms. terms yeah. So, um, and, and nationalistic bonds, they're haram and they never deliver. So it's just an important lesson at this time to remember. So these are kind of some very important internal factors. Is that all right, uh, Paul? Yeah, um, that's fine so far. Uh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm a bit worried that when, when I've been preparing this, that a lot of these different streams are parallel to each other. So the, the mm. change in ideas, the internal factors, the external factors, the rise of the Young Turks and then Mustafa Kemal, uh, the, the changing British foreign policy, uh, etc. So they're all happening at the same time. So try to unpick very this. Very complicated. Yeah, it's yeah. very complicated. So mm -hmm. we've got external forces we're going to look at now. It's worth starting with the relationship of the Khilafah and the West. So, I mean, you can't overlook the Crusades. It's a beautiful painting of uh, Jerusalem taken from the Mount of Olives. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, this is the approach that everyone seems to have to Jerusalem. Uh, mm -hmm. It's um, the approach that Omar al-Khattab saw when he first approached Jerusalem because the mountain, uh, Jabal Muqabbar, which he entered, which he entered the region from, overlooks Jerusalem from the same perspective. Um, and uh, Salahuddin entered Jerusalem from this perspective as well. Um, so the Crusades were about retaking the Holy Land. And obviously that defines a lot of the relationship of the Khilafah with Europe, with the, with the West. And the fall of Granada and the, the fact that Islam was a European power going back to the early part of the Umayyad Khilafah. In fact, Cyprus came under Islam, I think, during the time of the Khilafah Rashida and uh, Uthman bin Affan, um, but by 1492, uh, Islam is expelled from Southern Europe um, in the fall of Granada. And then another milestone in Europe's history with Islam is the siege of Vienna. So Suleiman Qanuni, Suleiman the Magnificent, his armies, uh, his armies are at the gates of Vienna, which right. is a term for those who aren't familiar, which is a term that is a very emotive term which kind of makes Europe feel that you know Vienna is of course the capital of the Austro-Hungarian Empire the Habsburg Empire at this time so one of the greatest empires in Europe so literally uh, th these are what Europe's uh, and, 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 and all of this has defined Europe's relationship with the Khilafah mm. and then Napoleon invades in the early part of the 19th century in, in mm. Europe and is there for a little while. The British come in afterwards, in Egypt, sorry. Uh, one, one nice aspect of the Khilafah's relationship with the West is uh, uh, a really lovely example, which I, I don't know if your um, audience has heard of, is in the terrible 
Irish famine caused by potato blight in uh, the 1840s. And the worst year apparently was 1847. And Sultan Majid I uh, offered to send a huge amount of money to help the Irish, um, but was refused by the British because uh, Queen Victoria hadn't donated that much. Um, mm. The Irish were constantly in rebellion and um, to help them in the famine was was um, seen as being too kind to them. So giving mm. them just enough help to keep them weak was the policy over here. Um, so the Sultan gifted less, but for diplomatic reasons, but, but he then set, sent some ships over with food in secret um, to help the people. And, and to this day, people in Ireland remember this act of generosity from the Ottomans. And, um, and I think that's a, I think that's a lovely story. In fact, it's not a lesson I've put down, but a lesson for us is that when you as a Muslim want to see your Islam helping people around the world who are suffering, it's only ever really going to happen on a large scale Scale mm -hmm. when you have a political authority that is willing to devote resources to that. Um, what they can, what a political authority can do in terms of mobilizing ships and stuff like that in those days, you know, 100,000 individuals wouldn't be able to do. So it's a good lesson, I think, and a, and a beautiful story and a beautiful example yeah. of, really. of the, the Khilafah's relationship with the West. So actually, Britain has a quite an interesting history with the Khilafah because um, it was often in conflict with the rest of Europe from the time of Henry VIII onwards because mm. of the, um, uh, the, the, the religious conflicts. And... Um, so th there is evidence that in Tudor, Tudor times, um, there was, there was uh, quite a lot of interest in the Ottoman Khilafah. Um, it's that Henry VIII was very interested in, in Suleiman, uh, but also um, uh, Elizabeth I, her, her minister, Francis Walsingham, who was the head of their intelligence service, it is said that he had tried to recruit Ottoman help in the battle against the Spanish. Um, um, so Britain didn't have always a terrible history with the Ottoman mm. Khilafah. Um, but um, come back to the beginning of the 19th century, you've got this age of empires. Okay, yep. So you've got a declining Ottoman state, Britain, Russia, Austria-Hungarian Empire, uh, a change in uh, British policy because of what we've talked about, India and the fear from Russia. Um, over this time, they developed quite a, 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 a good relationship with the Ottoman Khilafah, hoping to see the Ottomans as a buffer, a strategic buffer against Russia uh, uh, for the sake of India and the Mediterranean. Um, and then something changes in uh, around uh, 1876. Um, and, and this is a very uh, interesting picture of the Congress of Berlin, I think it's in 1880-something, I can't remember. Um, uh, but this has got Bismarck in the centre, this has got Disraeli on our left, and on the right-hand side you can see these European statesmen wearing fezes, who are the Ottomans. Gives you some picture of where the Ottoman Khilafah stood in international relations terms in those days, okay? Um, 
Congress of Berlin, okay? Uh, and then there's this change in British policy. Um, I, you know, the problem I've got is in my notes, uh, hang on, I've got somewhere in my notes, I've got uh, the years of these things, but it doesn't show on the, so here we are. Um, change in British policy, uh, okay. So, so there's this, um, there's this uh, pamphlet written by Gladstone, um, Britain's Prime Minister Gladstone, um, who, after uh, some bloodshed in Bulgaria, um, and uh, there's a podcast I listened to recently, which was explaining that the bloodshed started because the Russians incited Christians in Bulgaria to start attacking Muslim villages. And the response back was a very brutal, very brutal, very harsh response back from the Ottoman state on that Christian minority. Mm. Uh, on that Christian minority, meaning minority in the whole of the Ottoman state, but actually probably a majority in the region of Bul which is now Bulgaria. Uh, and in Europe, Western Europe, this is seen as these Turks who are attacking our Christian brothers, oppressing minorities, spilling blood. Um, in that podcast, which was um, uh, contributed to by a guy whose book I would recommend called The Fall of the Ottomans by Eugene Rogan, Professor Eugene Rogan. It's a good book. It's an interesting book. And it's very good on the military aspects and uh, in the tail end of the Ottoman Khilafah called The Fall of the Ottomans. Eugene Rogan mentions in that podcast that, look, uh, uh, nobody mentions about the Muslim villages that were where people were killed and blood was spilled. And in fact, in Turkey, this is this is often mentioned today. That, that How come nobody mentions this anymore? That, that, you know, that's what this all started from. Nonetheless, Gladstone picks up on this. And in a very powerful pamphlet, he denounces the Ottomans. And you get this revert to type from Britain about the East, the Muslims, the Mohammedans, barbaric, backward, bloodthirsty, oppressing minorities, which is actually all untrue. Even the, the oppressing minorities, I mean, you know, this is the same era that, that Britain is oppressing minority, well, oppressing the whole of India and many other colonies, okay? Uh, this is uh, Britain and its relationship with Catholics since the the time of the English Reformation hasn't really been great. So, you know, it, this is, a, this is, I hate to say it, this is like basically Islamophobia on a state mm. level, basically. Um, and Disraeli, Gladstone, rival statesmen of their era, political enemies. Uh, Disraeli, a pragmatist, thinking about how he's going to deal with all the different affairs and dealing with the, the Ottomans in a certain way. Gladstone, a Whig, very, you know, think, think Tony Blair, but a hundred years before. Yeah, mm. think, think that kind of liberal statesman who really wants to impose values on the rest of the world. Britain's foreign policy, Britain's public opinion really changes towards the Khilafah in that period. Uh, and Palmerston famously said, a statesman of that era, foreign policy leader of that era, Britain has no eternal allies, no permanent enemies. Our interests are eternal, and it is those interests that it's our duty to follow. So Britain's policy interests have changed at this period. Uh, it's no longer going to try and support the Ottoman Khilafah. It's looking at other ways of 
dealing with its situation with Russia, particularly Greece, um, and it's got other ideas uh, in Egypt, etc., uh, etc. Et so Britain's policy has changed. Um, uh, and it changes from support to undermining it uh, diplomatically, politically, inciting some of the the, the dissent, uh, having having more agents or, or or how I could say supporters within the administration, um, uh, um, and then eventually declaring war, inciting the Arab revolt dividing the land up with France before the end of the First World War under the Sykes-Picot Treaty, which effectively carved up the whole of the Ottoman Khilafah, uh, and in some places, like Palestine, putting in direct occupation, and other places having their proxy rulers in there. Uh, and then really aiming to destroy the power of the Ottoman Khilafah uh, through the treaties of Sèvres and later through the Treaty of Lausanne. Um, and, and we'll look at some of these um, and, and these are kind of the caricatures of Abdul Hamid in particular um, uh, that the British press had in, and the European press in general had in those days. So um, very racialized, very uh, mocking and very, yeah, caricaturing really, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, so we get to a point in the era of the war, and we've talked about World War One to some extent in the previous part where we talked about the Arab Revolt, uh, where we've got to think about three tracts happening all at once. World War One has ended. Uh, you have uh, the Treaty of Versailles in Europe, and then the Treaty of Sèvres related to the Ottoman Khilafah. Uh, and uh, and that is not something that they're able to implement. So after a couple of years, you have the Lausanne Conference and eventually a Treaty of Lausanne, which settles the peace with the Ottoman Khilafah. This is one diplomatic track that we have to understand. At the same time, related to this, uh, there's a war breaks out between Greece and Turkey. When... Mm. The Allies defeat the Ottomans. Uh, British troops occupy Istanbul. Uh, throughout the war, it had been Russia that had its eyes on Constantinople. Uh, it, it was Russia saw itself as the upholder of the Orthodox Church. Constantinople, Hagia Sophia, was seen as, or I think they call it Hagia Sophia, was seen as like. Uh, uh, the most important city in Christendom, in Orthodox Christendom, and Russia had their eye on that. Uh, yet, during the First World War, there was the Russian Revolution in 1917, and the communists didn't really want to have their eye on a cathedral and, uh, and, a, and a, a, a city associated with Christianity. So uh, it, it, uh, it fell to the British to occupy Istanbul, and other of the Allied powers occupy other regions and Thessalonica was occupied by the Greek soldiers and this is like a red rag to the bull to the Turks mm. you know you to, to be occupied by the Greeks was unacceptable so a war breaks out between the 
Greeks and the Turks. And uh, this goes on for a year or two. And in that war, Mustafa Kemal plays a key part and is, is seen as the hero, the nationalist hero who resists the occupation. And all this time that he's resisting these occupiers, which is great, um, he's denouncing the government in Istanbul, the government of the Khalifa, as having capitulated, having sold out to the British, to, as being British agents. Mm. Um, and, and so he, over this time, he sets up another centre in Ankara, uh, another government. So you have two governments in what is then Ottoman Turkey. Um, but it strengthens his negotiating hand against the Allies because the Treaty of Sevres is it's actually available to read online. I wish I'd, I'd copied and pasted some of the bits. I've, I've got them on my Facebook page, actually. I shared them a couple of times. It's, it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. It's, you read it. It's literally taking all these provinces of the Ottoman Khilafah, Syria, Palestine, uh, um, Hejaz, uh, Cyprus, uh, and it's literally it's, it's carving them up. It's dismembering the Ottoman Khilafah in a way that I think probably no peace treaty in history has has literally uh, done. And it's sharing the spoils out with France in particular. Um, and, and so Mustafa Kemal, by, by leading the war against Greece, strengthens his negotiating hand. That's how it's looked at by others. That's why so many people respected him. Um, and at the same time, you have the rise of the nationalists and Mustafa Kemal and his people in the Ottoman Khilafah, which we talked about in the first part mm. of this. So these all are happening at the same time. And in addition to that, Britain's got to keep its eye on France and got to keep its eye on Russia. Uh, and it's got to keep its eye on the Muslims of India because they're watching all of this and they aren't happy. They aren't happy because they see it as a threat to the Khilafah. Uh, they see uh, this as a war on Islam. And we'll see some of this later. Um, the Sevres Treaty, which is dismembering the Khilafah, Lord George celebrated that Turkey is no more. Um, and uh, David Frumkin, in another excellent book I would recommend called A Peace to End All Peace, um, says that this treaty is for nothing less than reducing the Ottoman state to almost a non-entity. Um, and as I say, the Khalifa and his administration are portrayed as having sold out, but they've got an occupying force in Istanbul, They've lost the war. The young Turks uh, have been uh, either exiled or locked up um, uh, because they've been accused of war crimes. Um, so they're, they're left to pick up the pieces, the, the new administration in Istanbul. But they're, they're, they're portrayed as having sold out. And all of that is exploited by Mr. Bakanal uh, in his bid for leadership. And uh, so... Uh, again, in the Greek-Turkish War, very interesting. Initially, there was, there was a, actually a difference of opinion in the British administration. To start off with, they were all backing the Greeks, okay? Because this was so soon after 1918 mm. that it was seen as almost like a continuation of World War One. The war hadn't ended in uh, uh, Central and Eastern Europe, okay? So, and, uh, uh, and so um, Lloyd George was backing the Greeks from a civilizational perspective. Uh, he was really anti-Muslim, all right? Uh, there's a book I think you you and I know, uh, Paul, uh, A Line in the Sand by James Barr. 
Yes, yes. <clears throat> so, uh, the cues one you had. To, uh, yeah. Yeah, this, yes, I have it to hand. This one. There we go. Alain yeah. Nissan, uh, Spain, France. Uh, sorry, Britain, France, and the struggle that shaped the Middle East. James uh, Barr, uh, highly recommended by uh, scholars and others on the back. So that's worth reading. Yep. Thank it it is that. worth reading because it it talks about things like the Sykes Pico Accord, where the land is basically divided up between mm. uh, Saint Mark Sykes, British diplomat, and Georges Pico, French diplomat. It talks about the Balfour Declaration uh, and the 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 the, the decide to de the, the the decisions to try and carve out Palestine, um, uh, and uh, both the French wanting it and the British wanting it. Uh, it talks about the uh, Lloyd George, Churchill, Balfour, Sykes, Kitchener, and others from intimate documentation, which shows their attitudes towards the Muslim world. And really, Lloyd George is really doesn't like Islam at all. Um, mm. uh, he is um, uh, so. Yeah, he's uh, somebody who um, uh, sees it in civilizational terms. Uh, so you know, Greece beating Ottoman Turkey would be the liberal dream of a triumphant Hellenism and Christianity. Um, and, uh, but as the war goes on, there's a difference in the cabinet. Um, and this is, a, this is Britain's interests playing out. Mm. George has got this idea. We've got to support Greece. Others like Curzon, Lord Curzon, uh, Marquis Curzon of Kettleston, former uh, Viceroy of India, and, 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 and real foreign policy guru at this time uh, says, no, actually, Turkey, Ottoman Turkey, a rump Turkey, still offers our best protection and our, for our interests in the region. Um, and midway through this war, Lord George has gone. Uh, a new government takes over. I think it's Austin Chamberlain takes over as prime minister. Could be wrong, though. Yeah, I think it's Austin Chamberlain takes over as prime minister. And actually, uh, Britain kind of withdraws its support from the Greeks after having um, kind of like backed them some of the way, um, kind of like the Americans did with the Afghani government uh, mm -hmm. until until a couple of years back. They kind of pull the plug on them. Uh, and that effectively allows Mustafa Kemal to lead to a victory, uh, which, as I say, makes him even more of a hero. And, and this, this kind of feeds into the opinion that maybe the British were trying to empower Kamal. There's a lot, there's a lot when you read the history written from the Western perspective that would say that the West was anti-Kamal. Okay, there's a lot. And if you read it from a Kamalist history perspective, they'll all say Kamal was anti-West. I said before, there's a bit of history missing here, which is the Ottoman history, which was not pro-Kemalist. Um, and th there is a view out there that this is one of the examples of how Kemal was being empowered. And there's another view about this when it comes to the Lausanne Conference of 1922 being called, because in a very unusual way, the British who occupied Istanbul, who had direct communication with the Istanbul government, invite both Istanbul representatives and Ankara representatives, this revolutionary government in Ankara, 
to attend the Lausanne, Lausanne peace talks. Uh, now, some people would say this is geopolitics. They have to sort out the peace. They have to get all factions there. Um, others would say, well, actually, basically what you've done is you've recognized um, uh, this revolutionary government. Mm -hmm. And by giving them recognition, you've empowered them. Uh, and, and whatever the intention was, uh, it did empower them because this is in 1922. And if you remember in our first part, we said in October 1922, the Kemalists abolished the Sultanate. So they expelled the then Khalifa, the Sultan, uh, um, Mehmet. They expel him from Istanbul. He flees. Uh, and the powers of the Sultan go to the Grand National Assembly in Ankara, and the Khalifa is a figurehead, um, religious figure in Istanbul. Um, so uh, that's how these events kind of tie together. Mm. Uh, one reference I can find in academic work, um, but it's again, it's an opinion held by many, that... The Lausanne negotiations explicitly uh, call for adopting Western governmental and administrative standards. I'll be honest, I've done a lot of research on Western history books uh, that go through the negotiations at Lausanne. It doesn't really go into this. Um, it doesn't. Um, but um, this one very interesting book, Islam and the Politics of Secularism, The Caliphate in the Middle East by... Nurullah Ardic uh, uh, mentions this, and he goes on to to mention uh, Article Twenty Seven of the eventual Lausanne Treaty. Okay, and I think this is important. And this is, I'm not trying to be. This is, I'm really desperately trying not to be conspiratorial about this. Okay, so th th this, what I've said about Lausanne, shows that whatever the intention, uh, Kamal is empowered. And uh, Ardic is saying that there's something explicit about changing the nature of the future Turkey, making it less Islamic, okay? Uh, the official histories don't go into that, except when you get to this article, which says no power or jurisdiction in political, legislative, or administrative matters shall be exerted, exercised outside Turkey, Turkish territory, by the Turkish government or authorities for any reason whatsoever, over the nationals of a territory placed under sovereignty or protectorate of the other powers signatory of the present treaty or over the nationals of a territory detached from Turkey. Turkey, right? Uh, so the signatories of this treaty are going to include, uh, well, the nationalists in the east, in Ankara. Uh, the signatories of this treaty are going to include, uh, are going to cover, sorry, this treaty is going to cover uh, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Palestine, Iraq, uh, uh, Egypt, Hejaz, uh, all, all the former Ottoman territories, except what's under the Istanbul administration, right? Um, and it, it says, it is understood that the spiritual attributions of the Muslim religious authorities are in no way infringed. Mm. This is this is an olive branch to the Muslims in India. This is to show the Muslims in India that they are not anti-Islam. <laughs> they are just anti the Ottoman Empire. 
right, as a power, right? But effectively, this article, once it's signed, says the Khalifa has no political power outside of what is under the Istanbul center. Anything that's covered by Ankara and anything outside in the former Ottoman territories, there's no power of Islam there anymore. Mm. Okay. That, that was in the actual legal treaty in the end of it. In fact, um, uh, this is an earlier draft, which I found somewhere else, which was, was being discussed. It's too much detail, I think. All right. Um, the British were looking for an alternative spiritual caliph, a spiritual only caliph, I should say. Okay. Um, there are many detailed, documented correspondence between uh, British, different British diplomats, which show that they were looking for an alternative to the current setup of the Khilafah. So on the table were multiple Khalifas. So uh, you have the one in Istanbul, you've got an Arab Khalifa, maybe Sharif Hussein in Mecca. Uh, you have uh, some in North Africa uh, who are, who are, whose names are put forward. Uh, you have even even you know the the, the leadership of the Aga Khan over the Ismailis and the uh, um, the uh, Ghulam Mirza Ahmed as the Khalifa over the Ahmadis Qadianis is like mentioned in some of these uh, papers. Um, but. Uh, and even the idea of uh, trying to destroy the the the, the Khilafah in, in 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 Istanbul, but uh, moving it, relocating it to Mecca, and the Sharif was saying is all of this is touted, um, and this is a from an India Office handbook uh, penned in 1919, um, and it makes the point that look. Um, from the history of the Khilafah, all the utterances of present-day authorities on Muhammadan law and tradition, okay, from the history of the Khilafah, nor the Sharia, basically, uh, it doesn't appear that the Khilafah can be regarded as a spiritual domain only, right? It's always had spiritual and temporal power, okay? So for those people who are kind of questioning that, 1919, confidential, behind-the-scenes, British Foreign Office, uh, India Office handbook advice is, you can't do this. The idea mm -hmm. of having a spiritual caliph is not going to work. Mm -hmm. The caliph will always be seen as political by some people. Okay? Uh, interesting paper, that. Um, mm. And uh, the same handbook actually also makes the point, after the defeat of the Ottomans, that it may become clear that caliphate as an institution is as dead as the Holy Roman Empire. Vox et mm. praeteria nihil, a voice but no substance. Uh, I had to Google that to get the translation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I don't know Latin. Um, but uh, basically, their opinion is that, you know what, you've got this idea of getting... Sharif Hussein as a caliph, but frankly speaking, we don't think uh, it's uh, 
the, the Khilafah is going to last for long. Um, actually, the Secretary of State for India is a very interesting diplomat called Edwin Montague. Uh, and he wrote numerous letters to Lloyd George complaining that the tone of the British response to the post-war period was very anti-Muslim, very anti-Islam. And you are just creating a problem in India that, that actually all these Indian Muslims who are uh, looking for independence in India and looking to remove the British influence in India uh, and showing what you're doing in uh, the Ottoman Khilafah as being anti-Islam. And this is a problem. And Lloyd George actually, if documented, gets fed up with these. Montague is very interesting because, um, side point, he's one of the only uh, English Jews in the administration. And when the Balfour Declaration is being touted uh, in cabinet behind closed doors, should we make this promise, this pledge to uh, Lord Rothschild representing the Zionist interest that should Britain win the war, it will give Palestine, uh, the J J Jewish people, a homeland in Palestine. Um, and there's big discussion to be had about that, but obviously finance is something to do with it. Um, but also the um, attracting the, um, the Jewish lobby in America uh, to try and get America to enter the war is something to do with it. Um, but, but Britain does this in the Balfour Declaration. It's being debated amongst uh, Kitchener, Sykes, um, Balfour, Lloyd George, Churchill in private, and Montague, right? It's being debated amongst all of them. Montague's view is we must not sign it. Basically, you will be saying to all Jews around the world, including English Jews, go home to your homeland mm -hmm. in Palestine. And, and this was alienating to English Jews. And it's a very interesting guy in this respect um, that's worth reading into if anyone's interested. So this debate goes on. Should we have an Arab caliph or no caliph? Uh, caliph, I should say, or Khalifa. Uh, Curzon writing to Cromer in uh, in uh, in a private correspondence. He says, "Look, we're not in Constantinople, and even if we could replace the caliph there, there's no guarantee that the Muslims would accept it." So this is the debate that's going on behind closed doors at the same time as these peace conferences and these treaties, and at the same time that Mustafa Kemal is rising in power in the post-war Ottoman state. Um, uh, Jonathan Lawrence in a very interesting book, which uh, I'll put in the references, I've forgotten the name of it now, but really interesting chapter on the fall of the Khilafah, um, mentions that um, Hussein bin Ali, the Sharif of Mecca, he was uh, actually trying to get support for himself as a new Khalifa when the abolition happened in, on the 3rd of March of 1924. Uh, and he actually even falsely claimed that the Kurdish government would support him. Um, and... Um, on the 5th of March, he formally declared himself the Khalifa. Hmm. Um, and his son uh, was celebrating that the, uh, the caliphate has come back to the Arabs. Uh, and uh, the Turks had um, given a great service to the Arabs. And he felt like thanking, sending a telegram thanking Mustafa Kemal for that. So uh, this is what these kind of people were like, uh, basically. Uh, but despite that, the British observers there didn't think it would sell, actually. Uh, mm. that there, there was a journalist out there who was reporting back 
that there were plenty of Muslims who were unhappy about it. There were plenty of Muslims in the Arab lands that were once part of the Khilafah who felt this deep humiliation, this loyalty to Abdul Majid, even as the spiritual Khalifa. Um, and, um, and, you know, this talk of Arab cal the Caliphate back to Arabia and stuff, it, it was there from some people, but not by, by no means by all. And I'm sorry about the small print here, but in some correspondence between uh, the uh, advisors to the British, including Gertrude Bell, who was an intelligence officer based in the Middle East, who traveled widely, who had deep connections with these people, with Sharif Hussein, with her son Faisal, uh, and you know, she was writing back to uh, London. Um, you know what? Sharif Hussein's a non-starter on this. And this is the same Gertrude Bell who less than a decade later was writing back to London saying, Sharif Hussein's son Faisal is a guy we can back. Yeah? So she has some understanding of the region and she's just saying, you know what? Abdul Aziz Ibn Saud is a better bet to occupy uh the Hijaz and Najd than Sharif Hussein. And in fact, that is eventually what happened. Um, this is um, in the same period. Gertrude Bell wrote letters published by The Spectator uh, when Sharif Hussein's son Faisal was installed as the king of Iraq. And uh, this, this description in her letters that these two Arab tribal leaders, uh, Fahad and Ali Suleiman, stood up on either side of him. And the only way they could give their allegiance to Faisal was to say, we swear allegiance to you because you are acceptable to the British government. Imagine this <laughs> pledge of allegiance that actually says that in it. Faisal was a little surprised, Bertrand Bell says, but looked quickly round to me smiling. And then he said, uh, no one can doubt what my relations are to the British but we must settle our affairs ourselves. I, I don't want to be seen as a British stooge. He looked at me again and I held out my two hands clasped together as it's a symbol of union between the Arab people and the British government. Amazing. So uh, this is an amazing description of how these proxy leaders were installed um, to rule over the Middle East over the next few decades. Um, uh, this this um, diplomat, Harold Nicholson, also reinforces the idea that, uh, um, uh, uh, that, that Curzon uh, had no intention of dealing gently with the Turks. They had voluntarily aided Germany. They treated our prisoners harshly. They massacred our troops. Therefore, they deserved the fate which was inflicted upon them. Um, and uh, Nicholson quotes Curzon saying for five centuries, he says, the presence of the Turk in Europe has been a source of distraction, intrigue, corruption in European politics, of oppression and misrule to the subject nationalities. I mean, this is such a skewed version of the Turks in Europe. It's unbelievable because many historians, Western historians, will describe how the Ottomans managed to govern over this hugely diverse empire in a way that others didn't manage to. Um, so this just shows the prejudices coming out. And all of that, Paul, is what leads to the events that Mustafa Kemal assumes power, 
abolishes the Sultanate, abolishes the Ottoman state altogether together in November 1922, declaring a Turkish Republic, and then ultimately abolishes the office of the Khilafah and the institution in on the 3rd of March 1924. And the rest, as they say, is history and a terrible history at that mm. in the Middle East and um, beyond. Uh, in fact, one leading Indian Muslim politician wrote the Times in the week after the abolition of the Khilafah saying, I believe this will be a great a tragedy for civilization. He didn't just say for, for Muslims and for mm. Islam, but for civilization. And, you know, when people look at the, the, the wrongs, whether in Palestine or the wrongs that have come out of the Iraq war, the wrongs that have come out in Syria being destabilized, the wrongs that have come out from these tyrants and oppressors like the Assads and the Gaddafis and the Baathists and the Saddam Husseins and it stems back to these events. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a silver lining. I wanted to just end on the silver lining. Okay. If that's all right. Please. And we, last time we ended on the ayah of Quran, where mm -hmm. Allah subhanahu wa promises the return of the Khilafah to those mm -hmm. who believe and do good deeds and don't associate partners with Allah. Mm -hmm. And we have the promise of Allah's messenger. And we have the promise of two things. Uh, the first is a hadith in the Musnad of Imam Ahmad. And uh, the hadith is mentioned here and in the translation. The Prophet ﷺ describes ruling over the Muslims in different stages uh, according to what Allah wills. So the first is prophethood, which was with us when he ﷺ was with us. Hmm. And then khilafah on the method of prophethood. That was the first four khulafa. And then a kind of hereditary rule. And that was khilafa because it fulfilled the conditions of khilafa. And that was under the Abbas, uh, the Umayyads and the Abbasids and the Ottomans, all, the Uthmanis, all of these were examples. They fulfilled the conditions of khilafa, but they corrupted the process. They corrupted the bay'ah process, whereby the Khilafah Rashida, the rightly guided Khilafah, they took their bay'ah from the people of authority on representing the masses, sometimes directly from the people, but 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 if not, then from uh, people representing the authority of the people, the Ahlul Hal al Aqad, they're called. The Umayyads, the Abbasids, and the Ottomans, they kept their bay'ah within their ruling family. So it would go from father to son or from, fa yes. from ruler to son or from ruler to brother or to nephew. It stayed within the family, often to the person they thought was the most suitable rather than the mm. direct heir. It's a khilafah, but it's a corruption of the khilafah. And then the Prophet ﷺ described an oppressive rule, a biting rule, and that would last for as long as Allah wills. And then he said, wasallam that there will be khilafah on the method of prophethood again, then he was silent. Okay, mm. so basically we have another khilafah to come. And that khilafah, the Prophet also told us that this matter, khilafah, will continue after me in Medina, which it did. 
and then moved to Asham, which he did because the capital of Khilafah was in Damascus. And then to the peninsula. Well, if you include Iraq, broadly speaking, close to the Arabian Peninsula, it was in Baghdad. And it was in Iraq. Then to Bayt al-Maqdis. Oh, then to the city. Sorry, the city meaning the city of Heraclius, Constantinople, which it did. The seat of the Khilafah was in Constantinople. And then to Bayt al-Maqdis, Jerusalem. And to this day, the capital of the Khilafah has never been in Jerusalem. Jerusalem has not yet been the capital of the Khilafah. So this is a good news from the Prophet ﷺ, that in the future, the Khilafah will be re-established. It will be a Khilafah on the method of prophet, i.e. righteously guided. The most just, best example of Khilafah according to Islam. It will come as that form of Khilafah in the future. And its capital city will be Jerusalem, mashallah. Wow. That's, that's quite extraordinary. Quite extraordinary. Well, that's certainly a silver lining, I must say, after all that extraordinary history. So um, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Abdul Wahi, for your um, extraordinary survey on the history of the issues over uh, the centuries. Um, much food for thought there, much to digest. Um, and we'll put the links uh, in the description below to the items that you've mentioned um, for further reading. Um, so thank you very much uh, indeed for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.